So thank you for inviting me to um, preach again and to come back. Uh, it's not good circumstances because Pastor John is healing from some complexities with the surgery, but um, we know that uh, the Lord is with us and we pray that he continues to heal you. Um, yeah, and I, I realized I was look, you know how Facebook pops up things that happened a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Two days ago, my Facebook popped up a picture of me preaching here exactly three years ago, which, which we said was my last sermon here. Ha ha, God had the last laugh on that, right? Um, so I am very honored to, to be back. Um, and since then, so uh, let's see, that was 2019, um, in the uh, middle of summer. So since 2019, a lot has changed, right? It feels like a different mountain. It feels like a different community, a different world, if you will. Um, and all the change we have encountered in the last three uh, years has caused uh, significant divisions in our country, right? Maybe even divisions in our families, um, possibly divisions in churches we see and we hear about. Uh, God's church is trying to heal and find its way forward. Um, and the cause for divisions around us, they, they, they tend to keep coming, right? It's, it's not like COVID's over, yay, back to normal. <laughs> there really is no normal anymore. I mean, things, God is really shifting things up. And I like to say that because we know God is the one in control, ultimately. Um, but the causes for divisions, all these changes and all these uh, pretty deep and significant changes have keep increasing um, stress and, and anxiety and um, divisions among us. Uh, we are divided over the smallest of things, it seems like. Our, our tolerance level, um, it, you know, it's like moms with little kids. Like, you start off in the morning, and you're, you're pretty good. You're pretty patient. You do the count to three, you know. By the end of the day, you're just like, go to your room, you know. And, and that's what's happened the last couple years for us is, is the stress has just been mounting, and, and the, the issues keep coming, and, and uh, we... We just, our ability to handle them gracefully and with wisdom and with patience is diminishing. And we start dividing over the smallest of things. The language of division, and you think about it, is harsh and angry. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, I shouldn't probably say this because recorded, but um, uh, driving in Elk Grove, I, I live in Roseville because I'm an associate press professor at William Jessup right now, um, a university in Rockland, so I live in Roseville. My mom and sister live in Elk Grove, and I'm just telling you, there's some angry drivers there. They, they're, just, isn't, they're not just fast. I can drive fast. I drove on this mountain, I can drive, but they are angry drivers. Uh, so the, the, the language of division is harsh and angry, and we see this, we see on the news, people are angry, sometimes rightfully so, sometimes maybe needlessly, sometimes those things could have been settled with more tact and more people skills. Um, and churches are not exempt from these tensions, right? So. To be sure, we live in these divisive and uncertain times. Um, people are hesitant, therefore, to come back to church and jump back into church community. They're hesitant. Why? 
maybe COVID, but really that's starting to pass. I think the reason why people are hesitant to come back to church is they don't want to get their head bit off. They're hesitant about people being easily offended. They're hesitant about um, people criticizing them and not having space and room for how they might think or, or see things. Um, and so they're fearful. Um, some are hesitant to join any community at all these days. They're just hunkering down and isolating themselves and living through uh, virtual communities, virtual spaces where, you know, if, if someone's just coming at you a little too harshly, you can literally just, you know, leave that meeting and be right in your living room and, you know, delete them, that kind of thing. Um, it, it happens. Uh, we withdraw into uh, ideologically tighter groups and consider those who differ from us our enemy. I don't know when that really started happening, but but anyone that has a different opinion from us is now considered an enemy, and we become, in this global world, very, very tribal. We, we become where we just look for people who think and act and behave and see things just like us, and anyone outside of that is an enemy. Um, however, in all this diversity, and all this tension, and all these divisions, I believe the Bible still speaks. <laughs> I believe God's word is relevant for every day and age. And in Colossians 1.17, Paul brings good news to a fractured world then, because you better believe things were fractured then as well, and I believe he brings good news to a fractured world today. When he said, in him, pointing to Christ, all things hold together. In him, in Christ, in Jesus, all things hold together. The Greek word for hold together means to stand together, to line up with, and to uh, cohere. Um, Jesus is the one who makes standing next to standing next to me or you and all our different opinions make sense. Jesus is the one that can help us to stand together in our different opinions in our fears, in our worries, in our concerns, in our political preferences. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Jesus is our uniter. Jesus brings divided people together. And we'll see this morning that, that this is not a new message. <laughs> Paul wrote this in a day and age when God was trying to bring together people who were, who were very much separated and segregated from each other because of nationalities, because of class, um, because of race, because of gender. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, we can stand together in all of our differences. And so the, the key spiritual truth that I want to look at this morning is, is, is this, that Jesus seeks, gathers, and holds together people of different backgrounds and perspectives through faith, grace, and love. And so this is why I have named today's message Seeking, Gathering, and Holding Together in Christ. And so I want to talk about how the church can imitate Jesus in maintaining this unity in diversity. After all, the church is not just another organization. A church is not just a corporation. 
I mean, we have to follow the rules of California. We have to do our taxes. We have to do, we have to submit financials, accountables, and all that kind of stuff. We have to have bylaws because we live in the day and age that we do. But at the end of the day, the church is the living body of Christ. It, we, are, we are a living organism. We are literally the hands, the feet, the mind, the heart, the body of Christ. And we in no way want to cut apart the very body of Christ. And so this morning I want to look at some scriptures that inform us and instruct us how you and I, as organisms in Christ's body, can seek, gather, and hold together different people of various backgrounds and perspectives. Because honestly, as we go forward as a church, this is what we're going to have to do. Unless we just want our little, as what my old pastor used to say, our little holy huddle. If we just want our holy huddle, then you can just leave. You don't even need the sermon. But if you want to grow the body of Christ, if you want to expand Christ in the world, we're going to have to learn how to hold together in our differences and in diversity. So the first scriptural text, and we're just going to do some paraphrasing because of time, but or the, or the first thing that Jesus shows us in the scriptures is to seek the lost with grace. Seek the lost with grace. And that should be on the, on the slide. Seeking the lost with grace. Um, the first scripture I think of, and the reason I... I um, am giving this instruction comes exactly from these scriptures. So in Luke 14, 15 through 24, Jesus told a parable about a great banquet. And just paraphrasing, basically, uh, when the banquet was ready, uh, the, the king um, sent out his servants to go, to go invite those who were invited to the banquet. And they made all kinds of excuses why they couldn't come. And so they reported back to the king that they, they, were, they just can't come. And the master then sent his servants to go find the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And they came. And yet there's still room at the table. And so the master sent out his servants again. And I love in Luke 14, 22, it says, there was still room. So the master sends them out again and compels people from the roads to come in. And, and, and we see this picture of this, this seeking out people to join the king at the banquet table. And we also get a picture of seeking the lost. We get a picture of seeking the lost in Luke 15 parables. And we're not going to read all of Luke 15, but, but if you have a chance this week, you might want to because there's three parables in it, and they really all have the same theme. Now, Luke 15 uh, really focuses on each illustrate the Father's heart to seek and save the lost, each one. So what is interesting about each of these parables is that the seeking and the saving is intentional. So for instance, in the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd leaves at the expense and at the, um, the danger of leaving 99 sheep he leaves those sheep in this parable, and the shepherd who represents Jesus goes out and seeks out and finds the lost sheep and puts the sheep on his shoulders and brings the sheep home, and there's a huge celebration because the lost sheep has been found and returned home. You see this, this intentionality. Um, the shepherd didn't just wait for the lost sheep to come to his senses to come back. 
The shepherd shepherd didn't just say, well, you know, I got 99, what's one? Instead, what God is communicating through this parable is the value of each and every person to the Father. And And that the shepherd goes out and finds each and every lost soul. And we as a church need to do that as well. And then there's the parable of the lost coin, where the woman is looking for the coin. It's one coin. It may have been a wealth to her, but but the parable is the same tone. She is seeking. She won't stop until she finds her one lost coin. In the parable of the lost son, which Luke 15 ends with, the father runs out to meet the lost son. The father runs out to meet him, which means you get this picture of the father watching for, waiting for, praying for. And in all the free will that the God gives us, the father is, is, is still seeking out, is still praying, hoping, receiving, running toward the one who is ready to be received. So hence, God calls his church to seek out and be intentional to receive back the lost into fellowship with God. And this requires an intentional investment of God's resources, like we talked about in the parable of the talents last week. And I think in today's post-Christendom era, which just means that the culture around us doesn't naturally respect Christianity, even in a secular realm, they don't really respect our morals like the world used to. They're not going to, um, just for the fun of it and come check out church. Um, They would really be nervous to come into church because, again, they see anyone different than themselves as their enemy, which requires the church to do this seeking. It requires the church to do a lot more inviting. It requires the church to do a lot more relational work outside of the church to help someone feel comfortable to come into the fellowship. We need to be like the shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep, and seek out the lost instead of waiting for people to come in. Seeking also requires being open to different people with different styles, different backgrounds, different cultures, uh, different opinions, and to join Jesus at the table, especially those who are different than ourselves. Uh, The disciples struggle with this as well. In Luke 9, 49 uh, through 50, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Interesting. Interesting terminology. He's not one of us, but he's driving out demons in your name. And so Jesus replied, do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. See, we don't always know what to do with people who aren't in our familiar circles, especially the smaller the church, the more comfortable you are with everyone and you have a dinner and you sit down, you have a dinner together at the church and then some people come in and they're just so different. You know, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable all of a sudden. Or maybe the church grows, which is a beautiful thing, and all of a sudden you don't know half the people and you feel lost. Sometimes we struggle with being comfortable with people who aren't in our familiar circles, and we tend to only seek out the lost who look like us. And sadly, Christians don't value diversity as much as God does. This diversity thing is God's idea, by the way. 
It's not because of 2020 or COVID or all the things that happened. This diversity thing, God created. However, unfortunately, Sunday morning remains the most segregated hour of the week. And this segregation often expands beyond color and culture to include economic status, educational backgrounds, personality types. We tend to worship with those we feel are like us. We do the same. However, my husband and I have had this list on whenever we're in a season in our life where we're church shopping, and we've been looking for a multi-ethnic church. And honestly, we cannot find one. Because everyone of every color likes to worship with their own kind. And yet, the Apostle John provides us a glimpse of the vision the Lord gave him about the coming kingdom of God in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. He says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is clear that God's kingdom is not segregated in any shape or form. Now we know this will happen in the end and some of you might be thinking, well, that's great, but in the meantime, you know, we just have our own churches. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with it. You're just missing out. I mean, I thought church was supposed to be a taste of heaven. I thought we were just supposed to get a little glimpse every Sunday. Just missing out. And by the way, as I said, this is the good news of the gospel. The fact that that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the fact that he rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father, and he came back and he basically said, the kingdom is now open to all. That is the good news. Because before the good news, the bad news was if you weren't a a Jewish heritage, if you weren't right standing with the law and the church leaders, you weren't allowed to worship in the temple. You were kicked out of God's community. You were lost. And so the good news that Paul says in in Galatians, which, by the way, is the very first letter of, of, Paul's, of Paul's writing. So it's the earliest we have of Paul's writing. This is way back towards the beginning. But Paul says right away, Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ. So the good news of Christ, is, or good news of the gospel, is that no more Jew, Gentile, slave, slave free, male, female segregation needed in the temple courts. Come on in. Jesus made the way. And so therefore, we seek the lost with grace, and we gather in repentance. There's our second um, instruction we receive from the word. Now, returning back to Luke 15, in the story of the parable of the lost sheep, God gives us discernment about seeking and gathering. At the very end, he gives a little tip about gathering. So in the illustration of the lost sheep, the shepherd gathers the lost sheep and brings it home where everyone celebrates. And then Jesus closes the story with a point about repentance. And honestly, if you read that story, you just kind of feel like it comes out of nowhere because you're tracking with the story and then he throws in this idea of repentance. Look with me on the screen. It says, I tell you, Luke 15, 7, I tell you that in the same way, 
meaning the same way that there in the story there was celebration about the one lost sheep being found, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Oh, he says at the very end, it's like a mic drop. And then he just walks away. This is what Jesus does. So it's important to remember that Jesus is typically speaking to two or to, to mix people in the crowd. Typically two different sets of people, two or three, but, but a mixed crowd. In Luke 15, one through three, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So we have tax collectors, you have sinners. They're kind of in the same group. They're the outcast of, of uh, the Jewish people. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. So the Pharisees, teacher of the law, were there too. Did you get that? It was a mixed crowd. And they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told the parable. See, Jesus was a master of knowing who's in the crowd, which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do. So as a pastor, we know we have people all different places in their spiritual journey. We have some people that have never been to church. We have some people never heard the gospel. We have some people that are ready to receive the gospel. We have some people walking with Jesus for 50, 60 years. We, we, we have some people that know the Bible inside and out, and other people never opened it. And honestly, when you prepare a sermon, it's, it's not that easy to remember who's in the audience. But Jesus was a master at it. And so he's always in a story hitting different points to speak to different people. So uh, to the sinners and tax collectors, Jesus was pointing out to them his mission was to seek and save the lost sheep of Israel. That would have been a comfort, right? God has not forgotten us. God knows we're out here. We're outcasts. We're lost we're not in shalom. We're not in, we're not in community with God and, and our people. And, and God sent the shepherd. Are you saying God sent you to come and help us come back into community? But to the Pharisees, Jewish leaders, and, and Jewish leaders, Jesus was pointing out, God is seeking out those who know they need to repent of their sins. Here's where the gathering comes in, you see, in fact, God is willing to leave the 99, who, which he did in the beginning, which when you first read the story, you're like, who, like, that's kind of scary. You just leave them without a shepherd. But he's willing to leave the 99 who don't think they need forgiveness of their sins for those who know they do. You see, the Pharisees were working against Jesus because they had justified themselves by their own moral code. They had justified themselves, yes, by God's law, but they had added on lots of rules, which made them feel self-righteous. They justified their opinions, their teachings, their rules, and they were above everyone else. Kind of feels like the church today. It kind of feels like our world. Everyone's coming up with their own moral code. Everyone's justifying themselves, how they think, what they feel, their behavior, this is right, that you're wrong. I mean, they had come up with their own, and so they were working against Jesus. And yet, what Jesus is trying to tell them, they were just as lost in their own sins as those sinners they deemed as lost. He was trying to wake them up. Like, you're just as lost. And if you want to be found by God, you need you need to, if you want to be gathered into community, there's this call for repentance, if you will. You need to acknowledge that you're lost. And so to be clear, to repent literally means to turn back 
or away from the direction you're going and head a new direction. So repent is not just, I'm going to agree to disagree or, yeah, I'll think about that. Repent is actually I'm going in this direction and I'm actually going to turn around and go in a different direction. This is the idea of repentance. And we see this throughout the scriptures where Jesus gives grace and mercy and healing and forgiveness. And then he always says, and sin no more. He meets people as we're going in the wrong direction. He loves them. He gives grace. He gives forgiveness. But he doesn't just let them keep going in the wrong direction. He actually says, go in God's direction. Go, go with God. Submit yourself to God's ways. And so to be clear, though, sinning no more, right, that requires patience and grace. Uh, it's a lifelong process for all of us. I mean, you know, when we realize God's perfect love and God's perfect standards, yes, we're all sinners, which is the point of the story. We all need to be found. And Jesus will go out after us daily to help us understand that and to help us repent from it and go in a different way. Now, repentance uh, is not, uh, as my husband says, I love it, he says, not about perfection, but direction, right? Repentance is, is a matter of sincerity, an intention to live differently. We may struggle in all of our different sins. We're going to see a list of sins in a minute that we'll be able to relate to at least one of them. And yes, we're, we do sin, and we are forgiven. But it's because we're walking in this state of, you know, we're walking, we're following Jesus, and, we, and you know, we have two puppies at home, they have puppy brain. You know, you train them, you teach them, and then they just do the opposite. We're like puppy brain. We're walking, we're following Jesus, and then we just, oh, oh, wait, what's that, what's that? And we go the wrong way. And we sin. It's little things. doesn't even have to be big things. And so, yes, it takes, this is a constant um, it's, it's, it's a constant posture, if you will. The, the gathering, when Jesus says, I'm going to gather those who know they need forgiveness, who are ready to repent of their sin. This is a constant posture that we, we have to live in because we're sinful creatures. It's a constant posture of the church. Um, I think of the story, the sinful repentant woman in Luke 7, um, 37 through 50, I believe, if you want to look it up this week, and at the end, Jesus says something kind of crazy. He says, um, uh, she who has been forgiven much loves much. Basically saying, when you, when you know that you need to be forgiven, this is what spurs on your love to God. If we want to increase our, our love for God, if you want to love God more, then acknowledge how much you need to be forgiven every day. Because Jesus said, she who has been forgiven much loves much. It's, it's the lesson of repentance. It's a posture. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's the posture we have to have with each other as well. That, hey, I mess up too. I'm lost too. Let's, let's find our way together. Let's not judge each other when there's repentance, when there's a sincerity to turn around and go in a different direction. We all stumble. But we're going in the direction together, and we need to do it with grace and repentance. But in our context, it can be difficult, right? Gathering together is complex. So did you know that the word church comes from the word ecclesia in the New Testament, which means assembly? And the meaning of that word assembly is not so much, it's a little bit like we use it, but we forget half of the meaning. And the meaning of the assembly is it's called out to gather together. It's like you got a personal invitation to show up at the gathering. 
So the church is God's personal invitation to gather together. And as we do that, with everyone having different opinions, it's hard to know where we draw the lines of what is right, what is wrong, where do we accept church members and lead, uh, where do we accept church members, where do we, where do we let people lead, when do we not accept people as church members, um, when do we confront, when do we give grace. These are complex things, especially in our day and age when everyone is writing their own moral code and everyone feels entitled to shape and live out their own ways, if you will. And in that, we need to be careful uh, not to find ourselves working against Jesus by justifying ourselves, but instead, always living in this state of repentance, this, this constant state of confession with the Lord. You know, when, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, first Peter would have nothing to do with it. No, no, you can't wash my feet. And then Jesus said, well, unless I wash your feet, you're not clean. And, Jesus, and Peter's like, you know, well, I'm all in. Give me a shower. Okay, but, but <laughs> what I love, the, the image of washing feet is that, yes, we are cleansed in Christ. We are forgiven as we put our faith in Christ. Our sins are gone, but we still need to wash our feet. Like our feet still get dirty. Jesus is trying to tell them that too. Like wash each other's feet. Like we need to forgive each other. We need to extend grace. We need to repent. We need a foot washing. And we need to do it together. Jesus calls his church to this lifestyle of repentance, continually moving away from which is not Christ-like and, to and towards what is holy. And finally, we seek the lost with grace, we gather in repentance, and we hold together in love. We talked about how the New Testament was written with this very idea that people of different economic status in that day, people of different bloodlines, people of different cultures, uh, Gentile dogs, if you will, can commune and have fellowship with and love can be the center with God's chosen people. Everybody can love one another and everyone can hold together in love. See, and God's goal is that in Christ, there would be a new humanity. No more classifications and power groups and dominations and superiorities and race theories and no more of that. That in Christ, we are one new humanity. And the only way we can do that is if we hold together in love. Now, as wonderful as this sounds, it sets the stage for a lot of problems, right? because we're very, very different. It's God's wonderful idea. It's the most beautiful thing you'll ever experience, but it's probably the hardest thing you'll ever do. So for that reason, God has given us a lot of instructions about how to get along with another, one another in love, how to maintain unity in Christ amidst such great diversity. And first and foremost, we maintain unity amidst diversity by maintaining the master's authority. Think back of that parable of the banquet. Who was the one that invited? Who told the servants when to go? Whose rules? Whose house? Whose table? We never forget whose we are. We, we are the body, and the body has a head. It is not a decapitated body walking around trying to rule itself. The body has the head, and the head is Christ. 
And we have to remember that. And if we know anything about science, yes, there's communication happening from this way up, but the head is actually leading the body as Christ leads this church. Secondly, as never before, this requires discerning the essentials of our faith from the non-essentials. This is a big deal, right? In our day and age where everything's a big deal, where everything's essential to everyone, we have to discern the difference if we're going to commune together in peace. The essentials of our faith are those issues that God makes it very clear, very clear, are not consistent nor exist in any way with God's moral code. They're pretty clear. It's the, problem, it, the problem is not that they're not clear, we just don't like them. Okay, so they're clear, they're not things that we, what's the Bible saying about that? It's not like that, and we'll look at a list in a minute. And they're typically listed in places that draw a hard line regarding who will be in God's kingdom and who will not, which in a day of tolerance is not very popular. But hey, these are Jesus' words, and I'm up here to teach the Bible. I didn't write it. So if you have a complaint, you could talk to God about it, okay? So let's look at one of them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and then we'll look at Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, which, by the way, sexually immoral is any sexual behavior outside of a man and woman being married. Any. It can be adultery. It can be fornication. It can be sex before marriage. doesn't have to be probably the first sin you're thinking of because that's listed in this separately, okay? Nor idolaters, nor adultery, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, uh, and that, in that day and age, you know, the translations, men represented humanity, so men and women. Uh, nor thieves, nor the greedy, I've been greedy, nor drunkards, nor, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's why people don't like to come to church. That's a really hard list. Now, again, repentance is not perfection, it's direction. We all stumble, we all fall. But what direction are we headed? Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and idolatry you and I have committed all the time. Capitalism, money, all kinds of things. Sorcery, enmity, strife. Have you encountered any strife? Jealousy. I was just jealous of Christian brothers and sisters the other day who just seemed like God liked them better than me. Because they were just in this season of blessing, and I was just like, oh, please help me not to be jealous. <laughs> I struggled. Fits of anger. Anybody get angry sometimes? Not in a, for a rightful reason. Uh, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, Paul said, that those who do, who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice those are all in the present tense. It's not those who have ever done them. The emphasis is also a lifestyle of commitment, right? It's the opposite of a posture of repentance. However, some of these behaviors listed are not popular or agreed upon these days. And so in order to maintain unity and diversity, we have to first and foremost acknowledge together who is in charge of this banquet, even when that's not popular. Who sets the rules? And we do so with grace and repentance and love. 
In addition to being able to discern the essentials from the non-essentials, we also have to be clear on what the non-essentials are. There's a saying that the, the church has served the church well, and it's on the next slide. It says, in essentials, unity, which means we agree together about this. This is easily to agree on because it's what God said. This is what we agree on together. And in non-essentials, things that give us space to see things differently, to interpret differently, to have opinions, we give liberty. We give freedom to agree to disagree. And in all things, charity, love, grace. We unify around the essentials and we give freedom for the non-essentials. Usually we get it backwards. Usually we do the very opposite. And how do we do this? First, we do our homework. We do our homework. We mine the word like hidden treasure. It's not easy following Jesus. It's not always super clear. And so we do our homework. And I've come up with this saying that where there's room in the word, there's room in my life, and there's room in the church. Where there's not room in the word, there's not room in my life, and there's not room in the church. So on the essentials, when things are clear, then there's no room in my life for that. On things that are not real clear, that people have different interpretations, because it's not like, basically it's not going to keep me out of the kingdom of God. I give lots of freedom to others too, because it won't keep them out of the kingdom of God. And we have to remember that. The issue of women in ministry. I don't know, but I, I didn't see here where it says female pastors or females who preach won't enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are other texts that some may interpret as saying that's a big no-no, but others do interpret it contextually in a different way. Is it on the list that is going to keep someone from getting into the kingdom, what they think about it, what they do with that. No. Believe me, as a female pastor, no one's more concerned with getting into the kingdom of God about me than me. Okay? No one's going to do her homework more than me. But I do come across those, and, and, and let me just, before I go do that, the reason I do is because there's room in the word. There are those texts that are like, mm, what's he saying? Am I supposed to just be completely silent, which means not leading worship, not doing anything, not asking anyone anything, just go home and then learn? It, should I, is, that what, is that a literal interpretation that some may take? Yes, but I also see passages that give me examples of women leading, uh, prophesying in church, in church uh, services, Deborah leading Israel, which as a judge was a leader, so there's Romans 16 has a list of women who worked with Paul in the church as leaders. So I do my homework, and if there's room in the word, if I see an example that God doesn't say, don't do that, you won't get into the kingdom of God, if there's not that, then I'm led by the Holy Spirit. And I do my homework, I do my best. But if, if it's on one of those lists that's going to keep me out of the kingdom of God, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't be up here. Okay. Now, I do find those who, who interpret the non-essentials in a different way. I, I, I come across those. I came across those here when I came up to chapel. I think I was one of your first, like, official pastors. I think there was Trudy, which was, like, kind of acted as pastor. I don't know if you ever gave her a title. But anyway, it was a big jump. It was a big jump for a lot of people. And I had some um, pretty strong, opinionated people, particularly men, who, didn't, who wasn't happy I was here. 
I won't say a name of one. He gives me, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my best to treat you nicely. Well, thank you. Because <laughs> we are going to live in eternity together, whether you like that or not. But so he said, but, you know, I just want you to know I'm not happy about this. I think it's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And he gives me all his reasons. He gives me those passages. And I looked at him, and I won't say his name, and I said, so-and-so, I think you and I are going to be best friends. He looked at me like, no. <laughs> and I said, here's why. Because you are mining the word. Because you, you have reverence for who's in charge of this church. Because you fear God and you are looking to the word for direction. And you know what? I'm doing the same. And I respect people for that. And if that's where you come, amen. Keep mining the word. Keep fearing God. Keep walking with God. Right? I would rather have that than someone who just didn't even care what God's word said at all. And eventually we were really good friends. So I was right. So, yeah. 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 So... The most important thing is that we love, right? For the sake of time, we're not going to read the love passages that are on the, the next slide. Um, but we know that, that Paul basically said, if we do all these great things and we don't have love, we gain nothing. And then Paul lists out, you know, what is, love is patient, kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. And so, so we go to how do we love in diversity? We, we speak the truth in love. In the essentials, we speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4, read that this week. There are going to be some essentials, not like women in ministry, but some other bigger issues. And how as a church, how as a neighbor, how as a friend, how as a family member do you speak truth in love? It takes great courage. But we have heroes of the faith that were our martyrs because they spoke the truth in love. In the non-essentials, we acknowledge our own biases. We all have them. We've all been raised certain ways. We have cultural backgrounds. And we have to come to the table knowing that I'm kind of like this. Please help me to soften or see things differently. We listen to each other. We're open to learn from another. And we agree to disagree on the non-essentials. In both the non-essentials and essentials, we find common ground. Kind of like I did with, with this person. I almost said the person's name. Um, kind of like I did with this person. Uh, I found common ground. And I believe we could do that in the essentials too. Because some of these issues, they're just human beings like you and I. They want the same things. They want love. They want family. They, they, want, they want a good life. We can start there. We can find common ground. So the result of seeking the loss, gathering the truth, and holding together in love, we may actually experience the fruit of the Spirit <laughs> in our churches. We may actually experience the fruit of the Spirit. We may actually experience it on Facebook. Who knows? When we speak the truth in love, when we seek the lost in grace, when we gather in repentance and we hold together in love, right? And in so doing, may the world witness a stabilizing unity within a beautiful diversity as only Jesus can accomplish. Amen? Amen. Amen.